Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connolly. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the life and times of Girolamo Savonarola, we covered events from about 1486 up until the death of Lorenzo de' Medici on April 8th, 1492. A decade prior to the death of Lorenzo, Savonarola had been reassigned to the convent of San Marco in Florence in order to preach. However, he had struggled to make inroads with the Florentine public largely due to his inexperience in preaching. In 1486, he was reassigned, first to Bologna, then back to his native Ferrara. He spent the next four years wandering across northern Italy, honing his preaching skills, and cultivating his reputation to the point that when he was reassigned back to Florence in 1490, massive crowds gathered at San Marco to hear him speak. The primary instigator behind Savonarola's return to Florence had been none other than Lorenzo the Magnificent himself. For the past two decades, Lorenzo had enjoyed the position of de facto ruler of the Florentine Republic. But Lorenzo's time on earth was rapidly coming to an end, and he could sense it. Congenital health defects had reduced the once-larger-than-life Lorenzo into a shell of his former self. It was in this context that Lorenzo's interests turned more to the spiritual and the divine. Savonarola's unimpeachable reputation as a preacher had enticed Lorenzo to bring the monk back to Florence, believing that his presence would be beneficial for him. Little did he know that by doing so, he was inviting into his city a man who would shortly become one of his most intractable rivals. Once firmly re-established in his position at San Marco, Savonarola took to the pulpit to denounce in fiery terms the evils that he saw at work in the city. He preached vociferously against the ruling classes of Florence, who extorted the poor and the weak and took away the people's republican freedoms that they had previously enjoyed. He prophesied that the day of reckoning was close at hand, and his sermons were filled with vivid and apocalyptic imagery. Of course, Lorenzo and his supporters took notice of the fact that they were the very people against whom Savonarola's vitriol was aimed. In response to these attacks against him, Lorenzo sought to undermine Savonarola's credibility by employing the assistance of another priest. When this failed, Lorenzo attempted to buy Savonarola's favor via a series of increasingly expensive gifts to San Marco. This, too, failed. As a last resort, he dispatched a delegation of five of Florence's most prominent citizens, to speak with Savonarola in order to urge him to change his ways. During their conversation, Savonarola astonished these men by demonstrating a knowledge of Florentine politics that they thought that he was incapable of, and by predicting that Lorenzo would die soon. The fire's prophecy came to pass within the next year, and by April 1492 it became abundantly clear to all who were close to him that Lorenzo's last days were quickly approaching. As he lay on his deathbed, Lorenzo, having been overcome with guilt and fearful of what was to come afterwards, sent for Savonarola. He asked the preacher for a final blessing. Savonarola replied that, in order for Lorenzo's sins to be forgiven and for his soul to be saved, he would have to renounce his massive fortune and restore liberty to the Republic of Florence. Lorenzo refused to do this, and he died the next day. The death of Lorenzo the Magnificent did not portend well for the future of the Florentine Republic. To be sure, Lorenzo had, continuing the precedent set by his father and grandfather, amassed increasingly greater wealth and power at the expense of the people and of the Republic, but his rule provided stability, a flourishing of the arts, and material prosperity. The people of Florence must have been ill with anticipation of what was next to come. Would Lorenzo's death herald a new age in Florentine republicanism? Would his son Piero take over and rule in a similar manner to his late father? Or, perhaps, would something else entirely come to pass? It was difficult to say for certain. 
Whatever was bound to happen, the next few days saw a series of ill omens in and around the city. On the night of Lorenzo's death, an unusually bright star could be observed to the north, towards the direction of the villa where Lorenzo lay dying. It disappeared around the same time that news of his death broke. Elsewhere in the city, people reported hearing the howling of wolves, and at the church of Santa Maria Novella, a woman, having apparently gone mad, cried out that a bull with horns of fire was going to destroy the city. Despite the enlightened humanist philosophy that many in Florence purported to ascribe to, in this time of great uncertainty, superstition took root among the people. Desperate for answers, many turned to a man who claimed to possess the gift of foresight, Girolamo Savonarola. Rumors had spread that Savonarola had prophesied Lorenzo's death, a prophecy that had since come to fruition. In the days and weeks that immediately followed, people once again flocked to hear Savonarola preach. On April 12, 1492, Good Friday, Savonarola informed the congregation of the latest vision that he had. Savonarola's biographer Pasquale Violari describes this vision in great detail, quote, During Lent, and precisely on Good Friday, he saw another vision in which a black cross arose from the city of Rome, and reaching the heavens, stretched out its arms over the whole earth. Upon the cross was written, The Cross of the Wrath of God. The sky was densely black, lightning flashed and thunder pealed, and there came a storm of wind and hail which killed a whole host of people. Then from the center of Jerusalem rose a golden cross, and upon this was written the cross of the mercy of God, and all nations flocked to adore it. According to Savonarola, this vision had come to him not during a quiet moment of meditation, but rather while he was in the midst of delivering his sermon. That Savonarola had correctly predicted the death of Lorenzo seemingly gave his words greater credibility. On July 25th of that year, another one of Savonarola's recent prophecies had come to pass. Pope Innocent VII died. By August, his successor had been elected, Rodrigo Borgia, who adopted the papal name Alexander VI. Borgia had hailed from a Spanish noble house. His uncle Alfonso had been elected pope in 1455. The following year, Borgia was appointed to the College of Cardinals. In the intervening decades, Borgia had, demonstrating his aptitude for both backroom politicking and for finance, amassed a great deal of wealth and power, which he leveraged to be elected pope upon the death of his predecessor, Innocent VII. The character of the new pope was well known to the people of Italy. Already, the Borgia family had begun to acquire the reputation that they still have to this day, and the name Borgia was already synonymous with such crimes as corruption, incest, adultery, theft, and murder. The fact that Alexander VI had fathered multiple children by different women during his tenure as cardinal was pretty much public knowledge. Therefore, the ascension of a man of this character to the papacy did not bode well for the future of the Catholic Church and for Italy, and only seemed to confirm Savonarola's conviction that the Church had grown hopelessly corrupt and was in desperate need of reform. While Savonarola related words of his vision to the congregated masses, Lorenzo's eldest son, the 20-year-old Piero de' Medici, was beginning to take over the reins of power as per his father's wishes, a task that he would ultimately fail to live up to. Given his young age, Piero's failure can be perhaps attributed more to inexperience rather than sheer ineptitude. However, the fact of the matter is that Piero is generally regarded by historians, both contemporary and modern, as being far less capable than his esteemed father. Piero had inherited a fair share of traits from Lorenzo, his handsome looks, irresistible charm, and athletic physique. His father had done his best to groom Piero from a young age to take over for him in the event that he died. To this end, he had employed the best tutors to give Piero an education befitting of a Renaissance prince. 
Although Piero had demonstrated a certain intellectual aptitude, he had far more of a predilection for physical activities instead, preferring hunting, jousting, and playing football to philosophy and statecraft. Having spent his entire life as the presumptive heir to the Medici dynasty had imparted an arrogant streak to his personality, which had occasionally led him to act impulsively and rashly. Lorenzo took notice of these character defects and had made an effort to rein in his son's worst impulses. If there was one lesson that Lorenzo hoped to impart to his son, it was that he could not rule alone. In order to rule over Florence effectively, Piero would have to rely on the assistance of the leading Florentine oligarchs who managed day-to-day -day affairs and whose support kept the Medici family in power. It seems that Piero did retain this message, but only to a certain degree. Piero was a fiercely independent figure in terms of his temperament. He wished to distinguish himself from his father, perhaps even to outshine him. He had little patience for the men who his father had kept around him, preferring instead to promote his own appointees to positions of power. In this way, the new ruler of Florence had managed to alienate a large portion of his primary base of support, the Florentine oligarchy. This is all to say nothing of the ordinary people of the city, many of whom had disliked Piero from the very beginning. When he demonstrated time and again that the affairs of state could not interest him any less, the young prince only continued to lose the support and respect of the people. And yet, despite displaying only the worst traits of his late father, Savonarola does not appear to have made any great effort to oppose Piero, at least for the first two years of his rule. It has been suggested that during his audience with the dying Lorenzo, Savonarola had graciously agreed to acquiesce to Piero's rule. His motives for doing so are rather unclear, but if this was indeed the case, then it explains why Savonarola did not seize on Piero's growing unpopularity to attack him publicly. Of course, this is not to say that Savonarola's preaching decreased in its severity at all during this period. In fact, quite the opposite was true. But rather than resorting to thinly-veiled attacks against the city's ruling classes, Savonarola continued to prophesize the impending apocalypse. In a series of sermons delivered in the Advent season of 1492, he began to speak on a new theme, Noah's Ark. In this biblical story, it is said that God destroyed the world of his creation by means of a flood, which engulfed the whole globe, because he had deemed it to have become corrupted beyond all redemption. According to Savonarola, just how God had spared Noah and his family from the flood by instructing him to build a massive wooden ark, so too would the righteous of the modern day be spared from God's wrath when it fell upon the corrupted earth once again. For his final Advent sermon of that year, Savonarola told the congregation of another vision that had appeared to him. In this vision, Savonarola had seen in the sky a hand brandishing a sword inscribed with the words, the sword of God above the earth, striking and swift. Then he saw three faces, which foretold divine punishment, with all three announcing in a single, booming voice, quote, I, the Lord, speak in my holy zeal. Lo, the days come when I shall unsheath my sword over you. Therefore turn to me before my anger is exhausted. For then, when the terrible trouble overtakes you, you shall want for peace, and it will not come. End quote. After this, Savonarola witnessed a series of events which portended war, famine, and plague that would be visited upon the earth shortly. So shocking were the scenes that Savonarola claims to have witnessed that he refrained from including all the horrific details in his sermon. Also around this time, Savonarola claimed that Italy was going to be invaded by a new Cyrus. This was a reference to the ancient Persian monarch Cyrus the Great, who conquered Babylon and set free the Israelite people who had been living in captivity there, allowing them to return to their promised land and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Like the Cyrus of antiquity, this new Cyrus would lead an invincible army and conquer all in his path. 
this would all be done according to the will of God. Although the text of the sermon has not survived, it seems apparent from other sermons that Savonarola believed that this new Cyrus, the unwitting instrument of God's will, existed in the form of the Ottoman Sultan, Bayezid II. Ever since the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the western expansion of the Ottoman Empire had posed a constant threat to Christendom. Most notably, the Ottomans had captured the port city of Otranto in southern Italy and held it for over a year before it was retaken. People throughout the Christian world, including in Italy, lived in near constant fear of the Muslim Turks, and Savonarola sought to exploit this fear to further his own agenda. However, as we will see later on, this new Cyrus would come not from the east, but from the west instead. In early 1493, Savonarola departed from Florence and was reassigned back to the city of Bologna. The instigator behind Savonarola's removal from the city appears to have been Piero de' Medici. Although the friar had tacitly accepted his authority, Piero still viewed Savonarola as a clear threat to his rule, and so he made arrangements with the proper church authorities to have him sent to Bologna. Although Bologna was at the time of possession of the Papal States, at this time a nobleman named Giovanni Bentivoglio ruled over the city with an iron fist on the Pope's behalf. Savonarola quickly discovered that he could not get away with preaching in the style to which he was accustomed in such an environment, and so he pulled back from such subjects as the apocalypse and the corruption of local elites. Nevertheless, his reputation preceded him, and he still drew in large crowds whenever he spoke in public. Among the regular attendees of Savonarola's servants in Bologna was Ginerva Bentivoglio, wife of the city's ruler. She had, much to the friar's annoyance, made a habit of arriving late to his sermons, always followed by a full retinue of courtiers. After she barged in on his sermons one too many times, Savonarola finally snapped, shouting, quote, Look, the devil, come to interrupt the word of God, end quote. The lady of Bologna was so offended by this that she ordered her bodyguards to strike the priest down where he stood, but they refused to carry out such a brazen attack upon a holy man. Not one to be deterred, Lady Bentivoglio then dispatched two assassins to murder Savonarola in his cell while he was in the midst of prayer, but Savonarola confronted his would-be killers with such an intensity that they both shrank from their duties. After Easter 1493, Savonarola was allowed to reassume his position as prior of San Marco in Florence. He found the convent in a worse state than he had left it. In years past, the friars of San Marco had always lived rather comfortably thanks to the generous patronage of the Medici family. The convent building itself was a beautiful example of Renaissance architecture, complete with many resplendent frescoes, and one of the largest libraries in Italy at the time. One night, Savonarola had a dream in which he encountered the 28 friars of San Marco who had died during his tenure as prior. To his horror, he learned that all but three of them had been sent to hell for breaking their vow of poverty. This latest vision served to convince Savonarola of the urgent necessity to return to the principles upon which the Dominican order had been founded. He was disgusted by the contradictions inherent in his position, and was determined to introduce within his own community the humble and austere lifestyle that he so often preached about. In order for this to come about, Savonarola had come around to the idea that he and his followers should abandon San Marco entirely and start anew elsewhere. This almost came to fruition at some point in 1493, when an anonymous patron donated to the monastery an empty, spacious plot of land in the countryside to the north of the city. There, Savonarola believed that he and his fellow monks could, quote, live a life of sanctity, erecting a poor and simple monastery, wearing woolen habits that are old and patched, eating and drinking sparingly in the sober manner of the saints, living in poor cells without anything but the bare necessities, maintaining silent contemplation and solitude, cut off from the rest of the world, 
end quote. Savonarole's proposal was seen by the Dominican order's hierarchy as being too radical, and so they moved to veto the move. Owing to a historical anomaly, the Dominicans of Florence and Tuscany were technically under the jurisdiction of the Dominican Congregation of Lombardy, which in turn was under the influence of the Duchy of Milan. Therefore, the ruler of Milan, Duke Ludovico Sforza, could exercise effective control over the affairs of the Dominicans in Tuscany. The duke considered the abandonment of San Marco to be a considerable blow to his own prestige, and so he tried to prevent it from happening. Piero de' Medici, on the other hand, saw this dispute as an opportunity to assert Florence's independence from its stronger rival in the north, and so he supported Savonarola in his decision. In order for the Tuscan congregation of Dominicans to be made independent of Milan, papal approval was necessary. What followed was a series of events that are frankly too convoluted for me to delve into in any great details, but suffice it to say that Piero was able to exert sufficient influence on Pope Alexander VI for him to approve the separation of the Tuscan congregation from the Lombard congregation. Savonarola was now the effective leader of this new congregation, something for which he wrote a letter of thanks to Piero, quote, Magnificent Piero, I told our fathers that it was my intention and the intention of the convent to do all that your magnificence wanted and to do it in the way that you wanted as I understood it. Ever ready to carry out all your wishes, I recommend to you your convent. The Lord's grace be with you. Amen, Father Girolamo. End quote. Now that he could act effectively independent of the senior officials in Milan, Savonarola moved to reform San Marco in accordance with his own vision. One of his first actions was to divest the convent of the considerable land holdings that it possessed outside the city. Next, Savonarola sought to reform daily life at the convent. Going forward, meals were to consist purely of bread and water, and were to be entirely communal. All monks were now required to work towards the maintenance of the convent. Personal belongings would no longer be permitted, and the convent's ornate decorations were stripped away and sold off. While Savonarola's reforms were tolerated in San Marco itself, when he attempted to implement them in other cities that now fell under his jurisdiction, such as Siena and Pisa, many monks preferred to quit rather than to submit to Savonarola's austere new strictures. When word reached the nearby town of San Gimignano, the entire monastic community there declared that it would remain a part of the Lombardy congregation. If anything else, the diplomatic wrangling between Piero and his Milanese counterpart over the internal affairs of the Dominican order was indicative of one thing. The balance of power in Italy, so carefully maintained for so long by the likes of Lorenzo the Magnificent, Pope Innocent VII, and King Ferrante I of Naples, was no longer as stable as it once had been. As it would turn out, it would take the death of the King of Naples to completely destabilize the geopolitical state of affairs, and to begin a series of wars that would engulf the entire Italian peninsula for the greater part of the next century. The story of the Italian wars begins with another figure, Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan. Technically, Ludovico, widely known by the epithet Il Moro, or the Moor, on account of his dark complexion, was not the rightful Duke of Milan. That honor went to his nephew, Gian Galeazzo Sforza. Gian Galeazzo was a mere seven years old when his father was assassinated, his uncle Ludovico generously offered to act as regent until young Gian came of age. However, even after he turned 18, his uncle refused to relinquish power to him. For his part, Gian himself did not seem all too faced by this development, preferring instead to occupy his days with hunting trips and banquets. His new bride, however, Prince Isabella of Naples, refused to stand for such a state of affairs. 
she appealed to her father, King Ferrante I of Naples, to pressure the regent to stand down and to allow the rightful duke to take his throne. When the ailing king died in January of 1494, his successor immediately took hostile action against Ludovico in order to install Gian Galeazzo on the throne of Milan. The reason why I'm delving into all of these intricacies of inter-Italian politics is to explain the reason why, in October 1494, King Charles VII of France invaded Italy at the head of an army the size of which had not been seen on the Italian peninsula since the time of the Roman Empire. With the new king of Naples firmly intent on deposing him, Ludovico Sforza realized that he was in a precarious position. He knew that his traditional allies, Florence and the Papal States, could not be trusted to come to his defense. Therefore, he did something entirely unprecedented. He turned to a power outside Italy for assistance, specifically the Kingdom of France. During this era, France was undoubtedly the single most powerful country in all of Europe. At the time, the kingdom was led by King Charles VII. 24 years old at this time, the French monarch had a peculiar lust for adventure and a claim to the throne of Naples through his paternal grandmother. However, Charles's ambitions did not stop with taking the Neapolitan throne. Once that had been accomplished, which he figured would be a relatively easy feat, he had grandiose ambitions to continue eastward, to reconquer both Constantinople and Jerusalem for Christendom. Charles VII was the scion of the senior branch of the centuries-old House of Valois, and, likely owing to the extensive inbreeding among the French noble houses, he was rather sickly as a child, and his stunted physical constitution bordered on deformity. Contemporary sources describe Charles VII as an affable person, but not the most intelligent. Even now, in his mid-twenties, and having received an education befitting of someone of his stature, he was still functionally illiterate. He is also described as being impulsive and possessing poor judgment. For quite some time now, Charles had been waiting impatiently for even the slightest pretext by which he could invade Italy and press his claim to the throne of Naples. In this enterprise, he had been urged on not only by his courtiers, who constantly played into his ever-growing ambition, but also by exiled Neapolitan noblemen who had been forced to flee the country following a failed attempt to depose King Ferrante I. These barons reassured the young king that Ferrante I and his successor were cruel tyrants, roundly despised by the people, and that if the king were to invade Naples, he and his army would surely be greeted as liberators. Another figure in the king's inner circle who was responsible for influencing him in this decision was Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere the future Pope Julius II. Della Rovere was a political opponent of Pope Alexander VI, and in supporting Charles VII's ambitions in Italy, the Cardinal saw an opportunity to strike back against his Borgia nemesis. Charles's long-awaited casus belli came in early 1494 in the form of Ludovico Sforza's plea for assistance. Almost immediately, Charles assembled 40,000 soldiers in southwestern France, an army several magnitudes larger than had been seen in Italy for centuries. In August of that year, he and his army crossed the border into the territory of the Duchy of Savoy in northwestern Italy. By early September, the main French force had reached the city of Asti, where Duke Ludovico and his wife Beatrice awaited them. Ludovico received the king into his domain with all the honors that were befitting of a foreign sovereign. A great many festivities were held in the city at the time in honor of Charles VII, sumptuous feasts, jousting tournaments, and the like. For Ludovico, these entertainments held a double purpose, as they were intended both to secure the king's good graces and, barring that, at least keep him distracted for the time being. The reason why the Moor sought to distract his ostensible ally was because he had grown wary of the king's true intentions. 
Accompanying him on campaign was his cousin, Louis de Orléans, who himself had a claim to the throne of Milan through his paternal grandmother, Valentina Visconti. All too conscious of the illegitimacy of his rule, Ludovico began to worry that Charles might make a bid to depose him and install his nephew in his place. Such suspicions were heightened when Charles VII announced his intentions to travel to the city of Pavia, where he intended to be received by Gian Galeazzo Sforza. All these diversions slowed the pace of the French army somewhat. It was slowed even further when King Charles came down with an illness in mid-September. On October 21st, just as the king was beginning to overcome his sickness, news reached him of the mysterious death of Gian Galeazzo Sforza. The official story was that Gian had died of a heart attack while in the midst of sexual intercourse, but it was widely believed that he had actually been poisoned by his uncle. The fact that Ludovico had wasted no time in declaring himself the rightful Duke of Milan only seemed to confirm such suspicions. The Moors' actions, or should I say alleged actions, were the cause for great scandal within the French camp. The French nobility was already opposed to the king's Italian adventure in the first place. They did not trust their duplicitous ally, the new Duke of Milan, nor did they believe that their own king had the competence to oversee so grand an undertaking as an invasion of Italy in the first place. With the bulk of the French army remaining encamped at Asti and later at Pavia, a vanguard force pushed ahead and immediately met with successes on the battlefield. On September 5th, the king's cousin Louis de Orléans won a battle against Neapolitan forces at Rapallo, some 25 miles to the southeast of Genoa. By October, the main French army was on the offensive again, and as they advanced further and further southwards, so too did stories of their massacres of civilians at Rapallo and Mordano. This turn of events had taken the people of Italy more or less completely by surprise. Simply put, the Italians were not accustomed to the French style of warfare. The countless smaller wars, which had pitted the various states of Italy against one another, had been governed by a sort of unofficial code of honor. They were fought primarily by armies of hired mercenaries, led by captains known as condottieri. Battles between these mercenary armies were often little more than glorified games of tactics, wherein the army that had been outmaneuvered into a losing position was allowed to withdraw from the battlefield with their ranks more or less intact. This meant that a great many of these battles were largely theatrical, nearly bloodless affairs. However, elsewhere in Europe, warfare was conducted in a manner that I assume most listeners would be more familiar with. A life-or-death struggle to kill as many enemies as possible and to overwhelm the opponent by sheer force of arms. The French also introduced another aspect of warfare to Italy to which the Italians were unaccustomed, artillery. The French army carried with it seemingly endless trains of mobile artillery. Although they may seem primitive by modern standards, at the time these bombards were weapons capable of unbelievable proportions of destruction, capable of reducing fortifications that had stood for centuries into rubble in a matter of mere hours. These unfamiliar ways of waging war inevitably led to rumors to take root of the French army's innumerable size, its ferocious and bloodthirsty temperament, and their near-invincible ability in combat. To the ordinary Italian, this must have seemed an event of near-apocalyptic proportions. The entire peninsula was gripped with fear. As the French army rapidly advanced in the direction of Florence, many came to believe that a violent sack of the city was imminent. Amidst this atmosphere of trepidation and confusion, Savonarola took to the pulpit on September 21st. That day, he drew in the largest crowd he had encountered by far. At this point, Savonarola was a much different man than he had been when he had first arrived in Florence all those years ago. He now knew how exactly to handle a crowd. 
For Savonarola, this moment must have brought some sort of perverse gratification. For two years now, he had been prophesying about the new Cyrus, who would exorcise the church of its demons and punish all of Italy for its many sins. Now, at last, that instrument of God had arrived in Italy in the form of King Charles VII and his mighty army. An excerpt from his sermon, quote, Lo, the sword has descended. Finally, the scourge has fallen upon us, and the prophecies have reached their fulfillment. Lo, it is the Lord God himself who leads this army. Such a thing was not prophesied by me, but by God himself. And now it is coming into being. More than that, it is taking place before our very eyes. End quote. Savonarola's sermon on that day shook many in the audience to their core. While the tone of his sermon was by no means out of the ordinary for him, the context in which it was given made all the friar's words ring out all too true for many in the congregation. Pico della Mirandola later recalled that upon hearing these words, he began to quake in fear. Others had a more difficult time maintaining their composure, as some began to loudly weep, while others cried out to the heavens, begging God for his mercy. Afterwards, when the people dispersed from the cathedral, one eyewitness wrote, quote, Everyone walked in awestruck silence about the city, as though they were only half alive. End quote. In late October, the French army reached Tuscany and brutally sacked the town of Fivizzano in the northern part of the region. Even at this time, as the situation grew more and more precarious by the day, Piero de' Medici hesitated to declare for one side or the other in the conflict. His critics are point to quick to this equivocation on this all-important matter as the ultimate evidence of his craven character. But to be fair to Piero, this was a very complicated matter, and the decision before him was not an easy one to make. On the one hand, Florence could side with Naples. In earlier years, the Florentines could rely on the support of the Papal States if they chose this course of action. But with a man as duplicitous as Alexander VI now serving as Pope, their allegiance could not be counted on. If the Papal States were to remain neutral, Florence would be left to face the might of the French army practically by itself, a terrifying prospect. On the other hand, if Florence declared for the French and Milanese faction, they ran the risk of provoking their more powerful neighbors on the peninsula. The longer that Piero prevaricated, the more quickly he hemorrhaged the support of all those in Florence, even those whom he had considered to be personal friends. Among the members of Piero's inner circle was a name that I'm sure will be familiar to most, Michelangelo Buonarroti. At the time, this famed Renaissance man was only 18 years of age. When he was just 14, he had been recommended to Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was so impressed by the boy's artistic ability that he had invited him to live at the Palazzo Medici. Thus, he and Piero had actually been friends for quite some time. Despite being younger than Piero by three years, Michelangelo, with his obsessive fixation on artistry, sober personality, and frugal spending habits, exhibited a far more mature character than his patron's son. Although Piero occasionally treated Michelangelo in a condescending manner, the two remained close, and after Lorenzo's death, Piero ensured that Michelangelo continued to benefit from Medici patronage. In autumn of 1494, amidst an atmosphere of anxiety and suspicion, a friend of Michelangelo's told him of a dream that he had had, quote, Lorenzo de' Medici appeared before him dressed in all-black garments, which were in tatters, so that they barely covered his nakedness, and Lorenzo had commanded him to say to his son Piero, that in a short time, he would be driven from his house and would never return. End quote. Michelangelo was so deeply shaken by the dream of his friends that he departed Florence for Bologna, fearing that were such a dream to become a reality, he would no longer be safe within the city. 
Even as French soldiers poured into Florentine lands, pillaging and slaughtering their city's garrisons, Piero still believed that it would be possible to maintain Florence's neutrality. He attempted to buy the French off with an offer of 300,000 francs, a truly massive sum. When this was rejected, Piero decided to undertake a course of action that, more than anything else, would earn him the epithet by which he is remembered by history, Piero the Unfortunate. But, in order to find out what exactly it was that the unfortunate Piero would do, you will have to tune in again in two weeks for the next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like for me to see, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can also reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. Additionally, I encourage you all to check out the show's Patreon page and eBay store for more ways to help out the podcast financially. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Liam Connor, signing off.